This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. We haven't inherited this planet from our parents. We've borrowed it from our children, and we've got to get together and do something about it if we care about our children and our grandchildren. That's world-renowned primatologist, anthropologist, and environmentalist Jane Goodall. At the age of 83, she's lost none of her passion for nature and optimism for humanity. Goodall is the subject of a new National Geographic documentary. It draws on over 100 hours of never-before-seen footage that's been tucked away in their archives for over 50 years. And we'll revisit our interview with another legendary conservationist, Yvonne Chouinard, the reluctant entrepreneur who founded Patagonia. You know, our, our mission statement is cause no unnecessary harm. Well, I want to go beyond that, and I want to do good. Jane Goodall and Yvonne Chouinard, up next on Climate One. Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Today, we'll hear from two legends of conservation, Jane Goodall and Yvonne Chouinard, both of whom have gone to extremes to help us better understand the natural world and how to protect it. When Jane Goodall was a child, her father gave her a stuffed chimpanzee doll named Jubilee. At the age of 26, she went with her mother to study chimpanzees in Gombe Stream National Park on the coast of what is now Tanzania. She had no college degree and no field experience. She later earned a PhD at Oxford and became famous around the world as a pioneering scientist and the foremost expert on our chimp cousins. Today, as a United Nations messenger of peace, Goodall travels the globe sharing her vision for a healthy balance between people, animals, and the environment. Here's Greg Dalton's conversation with Jane Goodall. Dr. Goodall, you travel the world uh, 300 days a year, and recently, at one point, you were in Greenland, and you had an encounter about climate change. Share with us that moment. Well, it was really when the reality of climate change kind of viscerally hit me, because I was with some of the Inuit elders, and we were by the great ice cap, and they were, they were crying, and they were saying, even in the summer, the ice here never melted. And there was just water pouring out of this great ice cliff, and the icebergs were carving, and it was really, you know. And then I happened to be going straight from there to Panama, and there I met some of the indigenous people who'd already been moved off their islands because, because of the melting ice, the sea levels were already rising, and they'd had to leave because at high tide, their homes were endangered. And that just hit me from one to the other, as though the fates had taken me from this place to that place to see, A, what was happening, and B, the effect it was having. So you knew about climate change before, but being there in that moment with those people made it different, got to your heart in a way that knowledge didn't. Exactly. Sometimes it, it just really hits you. And what have you done with that, that impact? Well, first of all, learning all that I can about it and reading some of the scientists' reports. 
and traveling around. And in all the lectures I give, and I don't know how many hundreds per year all over the world, I talk about it. You know, it's not the main topic of my lectures, but it's something that I always bring in as the greatest threat that we face right now. Jane Goodall, diet is a big lever when it comes to, to climate. Uh, some people say is that what you eat is more important than, than what you drive. What, what is your diet like, and how can people who are concerned about climate have a climate-smart diet? Well, it's, uh, I'm glad you asked that question, because I was determined to talk about it, even if you didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I think from about the, the late 60s, I stopped eating meat. Now, I stopped eating meat because I learned about the intensive animal agriculture and these terrible factory farms. And the next time I looked at meat on my plate, I thought, this symbolizes fear, pain, and death. So I stopped eating it. But then I began to realize a lot more that as nations around the world become wealthier, they eat more and more meat. It becomes a status symbol. And so what's happening is these billions of animals in these awful conditions, they have to be fed. Rainforests are being cut down to provide the grain. Huge amounts of fossil fuel are burned, getting the grain to the animals, the animals to the abattoir, the meat to the table. Huge amounts of water are being wasted to change vegetable protein to animal protein. I've been in many parts of the world where the grazing of cattle moving deeper and deeper and deeper into the forest change it to woodland and eventually into some kind of uh, inhospitable habitat which won't support life. And then, you know, if people don't care about animal welfare, okay, they don't care about the environment, okay, probably care about their own health. And I happened to be in the UK when the Surgeon General made this chilling announcement that the era of the antibiotics is nearly over and a main contribution is the misuse of antibiotics keeping these animals alive. And then the final thing, which impacts directly onto climate change, and these so-called greenhouse gases that circle the planet and trap the heat of the sun, you know, a very, a very vicious greenhouse gas is methane. And I usually carry around with me a little stuffed toy, a cow. And I point out, especially to the children, that, you know, you hold up the cow, food goes in the mouth, and gas comes out the other end. <laughs> and that's methane. And so the intensive animal uh, husbandry is causing a huge, huge amount of production of methane. Uh, you write a lot about empathy, and I'd like to know, you know, empathy for the chimpanzees that you studied. Can you summon empathy for poachers and people doing environmental degradation? I absolutely, you know, it depends. There's poachers and poachers. If we're talking about the international animal trafficking where people come in with helicopters and, and you know, machine guns and kill elephants for their ivory, no sympathy, none at all. However, having seen for myself the poverty in Africa, in and around the rainforests where the chimpanzees live, that we're trying to protect, you know, if you're very poor, you're going to kill an animal because you need to eat it and you don't have money to buy anywhere else. And if that animal happens to be in a protected area, then you're labeled a poacher. 
If you happen to be out of a protected area, it's called subsistence hunting. And so, uh, you, you know, but this goes beyond that simple, we got to kill to eat. And it, 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 when I flew over Gombe National Park in 1991 and looked down on this tiny 30 square miles of forest, which used to be part of the great forest belt, and saw that it was surrounded by completely bare hills with more people living there than the land could support, too poor to buy food from elsewhere, and living and struggling to survive. And that's when it hit me, we can't even try to save the chimps in the forest unless these people can have better lives. Because if you're starving, you, of course you cut down the last trees to try and grow food or to make charcoal. And it's the same thing, this, this necessity to alleviate poverty comes right through into the developed world. Because if you're very poor in an urban area, you're going to buy these very cheap foods because you have to, you've got to feed your family. You can't afford to look and buy the expensive organic products or the ones that come from you know, palm oil free products. So, Alleviating poverty, to me, is a very, very important part of slowing down climate change. Let's talk about some of the bright spots. Climate change is often seen as doom and gloom. There is a lot of alarming things happening. It's here, it's now. Uh, but Jane Goodall, you travel the world. Where are some really bright spots that you see where positive change is happening? Well, of course, <clears throat> I can't resist saying that we're having this long discussion about climate change. But it's a hoax was invented by the Chinese, right? <laughs> so I don't know why you have this program at all. But anyway. So we should just <laughs> so, talk about something else. <laughs> no, there's a lot of bright spots. This is it. I mean, people say, Jane, you can't really have hope because you've been around, you've seen the destruction of the forest, you've seen animals, species decreasing in number, you've seen the poverty and the, you know all the rest of it. But at the same time, I've seen incredible projects I've met the most amazing people who are doing things to really make change. And we do need changed attitudes. But I described flying over Gombe and seeing 30 square miles of forest surrounded by bare hills because we began working the Jane Goodall Institute with the local people to improve their lives in a holistic way. There are no bare hills anymore. The trees have come back and the chimpanzees have now more forest than they had, and we're protecting other areas where the forest hasn't yet been cut down. So this is one uh, bright spark that you're talking about. But, you know, travel around the world and see the incredible advances that are being made in ways of living in harmony rather than destroying nature, listening to nature, biodynamic farming, organic farming, small-scale family farming. Even the United Nations has said the best way to feed the growing population is small-scale family farming, not these monocultures. And please, let's eliminate genetically modified food. Let's eliminate some of these pesticide, chemical pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and that have been proven to be harmful, not only to the environment, but to our health, our children. 
You hear, we haven't inherited this planet from our parents. We've borrowed it from our children. We haven't borrowed our children's future. We've stolen it, and we're still stealing it, and we've got to get to together and do something about it if we care about our children and our grandchildren. And speaking of children, you have some thoughts about population as a driver beneath all of these things that we're talking about. Um, what should be done about population? For a long time, it was considered politically incorrect to even mention it. And most of the big uh, conservation organizations refused to mention it. But I always thought, I mean, you see what happens. In the old days, there were cultures in a lot of these indigenous people, and you had lots of children because they looked after you in your old age, and you shared out the land. But now it's different, and they know it's different. And that's why there were bare hills all around Gombe. So we've introduced in our program, we've introduced family planning, so welcomed by the people because they know that things are different. And of course, this administration is cutting family planning around the developing world, which is terrifying to me. And so if you approach family planning right, it's something that's very, very important. And when it was considered politically incorrect to mention it, and I was determined to mention it, I decided to call it voluntary population optimization. <laughs> so by the time people worked it out. <laughs> and research shows educating girls is one of the yeah, smartest I things. I meant to say that, yes, indeed. Women's education, empowering women, and scholarships to keep girls in school beyond puberty. Family size then tends to drop worldwide, indeed. You're listening to a Climate One Conversation with primatologist and UN Messenger of Peace, Jane Goodall. Her pioneering work with chimpanzees challenged the male-dominated scientific consensus of her time, revolutionized our understanding of the natural world, and inspired generations of young women to pursue their passion for science. Jane Goodall, as a pioneer in science who broke some glass ceilings, what advice do you have about girls who are interested in science, technology, engineering, math, STEM careers? I think I, I always tell young people what my mother told me. When I wanted to go to Africa and live with wild animals and write books about them when I was 10 years old, um, everybody laughed at me and said, well, you don't have the money, Africa's far away, the world is, World War II is raging, and you're just a girl. Dream about something you can achieve. But what my mother said to me was, if you really want to do something, you've got to work very hard, take advantage of opportunity, and never give up. So what I tell girls who want to pursue some career in science, it's not that easy and you've got to really want to do it. If you really want to do it, just go for it, work hard, and never give up. Pretty good advice. Um, and we have a number of children in the audience here today. We're talking about a very serious topic, climate change. Oftentimes, it's delicate to talk about climate change with children. How do you speak to young people about something that they're going to live this future more than the three of us are? How do you communicate to climate change to young people in a way that's not scary? 
I tell the, the children stories, but you know, we have a program for young people called Roots and Shoots, which has members in <laughs> has members in ninety-eight countries and it's kindergarten, university, everything in between. And so what I tell the young people is to explain the problem and then ask them to get around and think about what they could do. It's absolutely amazing what children can think of to do to mitigate climate change. So I think you, you explain the problem, and it can be a bit scary, but then you, you say to them, but you know, there's something every single one of us can do about it every single day. And you may feel, uh, adults too, that the problem is so huge, what can I do? I wouldn't make any difference. And if it was just you in your ordinary life, you wouldn't make any difference. But when you have billions of people thinking about the consequences of the choices they make, whether it's what they eat, what they buy, what they wear, you know, where did it come from, how was it made, then billions of ethical choices move us towards the kind of world we need. And that includes problems about climate change. What did you think when you learned that Rupert Murdoch bought National Geographic? Well, I must say I was shocked and horrified, but I also have to say that the additional funds that have been pumped into the Geographic is actually turning it around, and it's able to do some pretty remarkable things. So, you know, the fact that Murdoch bought it is one thing. The people who are now within the National Geographic um, organization, they're the ones who are going to make the difference. I've, I've been doing programs with them about various environmental issues in different parts of the world, because Geographic has offices everywhere. And they've just made a retrospective of Jane Goodall, using footage which, which wasn't ever shown before from, you know, they've got miles and miles of footage. I watched a little trailer for that. It's quite amazing watching you as a young woman climbing trees and very early in your <laughs> career. You said something earlier that you said you were, um, well, you wrote a book called Reason of Hope, Your Spiritual Journey. Uh, you've lived through the L London Brits. You've been taken hostage. You watched your husband die slowly from cancer. And yet you say you were lucky to be born during the war. So tell us about that reason for hope in your journey. I was lucky to be born during the war because in, in the UK, in England, we were rationed. So, I mean, I think we got something like one square of chocolate a week if we were lucky. We got one egg a week. Uh, clothes were all you know, coupons. You had to save up coupons. Books, well, we didn't have much money anyway, and so books came from the library, or you saved up a few pennies for second-hand books. So as a result of that kind of upbringing, I don't take stuff for granted. I, you know, it took a long time before I could understand buying a bar of chocolate was something that you could actually do. It seemed like exotic. So that's, I think, why today I can live in a very simple way and not take stuff for granted and appreciate what I have rather than be miserable about what I haven't. I've been working at the, the Commonwealth Club for 16 years. I often get asked, who's the most amazing speaker in that time? There's no one amazing one, but there is a top five moment that I remember 
14 years ago when Jane Goodall spoke to a group in San Jose and she held up a glass of water and talked about it in a very eloquent way that stayed with me for all these years. So I'd like you to look at this glass of water and tell us the beauty, what you see in that. Well, what I see here is a glass of clean water that I can drink and that you go to a restaurant and people will fill up your water and then what happens to it because you don't always want it. And we, we treat water as though it's just something that's our right. And there are so many parts of the world where this amount of clean drinking water would be prized beyond the most expensive glass of wine or even whiskey. Um, <laughs> and the, the shocking thing to me is the way that we in the developed world, we waste this precious, precious commodity. One of the awful things is that all over the world, freshwater supplies are shrinking, the aquifers are getting lower, but the pollution, the pollution from the runoff of agricultural and household and industrial waste into the rivers and then into the sea, polluting the sea, creating acidified areas so that the ocean is the other great lung of the world along with the rainforest. And as we pollute the, the, the ocean, we're also contributing to climate change. So to me, this little glass of water is, it, you know, it is just so, so important that we don't take it for granted, we don't waste it, and we see it as the lifeblood of people who have no clean water available to them. It's precious. Thank you. Let's go to our audience question. I was wondering, what is it like to be friends with chimps, and how is it alike or different than being friends with people? Well, it's, it's different, but uh, out, in the, out in the wild, we respect the chimpanzees, we watch them, they allow us to follow them and write down what they're doing, they allow us to film them. When I first went to Gombe, it was very different because then first the chimps ran away from me and then I managed to get closer. And in a way, they really were friends. David Graybeard allowed me to groom him and tickle him and play with him. And that's more like friendship. But now we know that chimps can get our diseases. We don't touch them anymore. So it's different. You, a, friend, a human friend has to be different because we can speak to them, we have the same language, and we're more alike than humans and chimps, even though chimps are more like us than anything else. But they're wonderful. Next question up on the balcony. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh, that was a great segue to my question, which is in a time where we are actually really divided as a country, where we do speak the same, same language, but it doesn't really feel like we do, how would you suggest communicating things like the importance of accepting climate change to Americans who don't want to acknowledge it in an empathetic way? I think the only way is telling stories and not arguing, not becoming aggressive. And I think if you speak to people in, in a, not in an angry way, but 
by trying to share what you know in a, a, a way of telling stories, like the story I told about Greenland and, and Panama. And that's one of the messages we have for our youth groups, our roots and shoots, that if I could see you all here, which I can't really, but I'm sure there are people with different colored skin, different, uh, I'm sure there's different cultures and different religions, and yet we're all part of one human family. And we now know from the DNA analysis, we are truly one human family. And if we cut ourselves, the blood is the same. If we cry, our tears are the same. If we laugh, we laugh from the same kind of emotion. And so we may look different and sound different, but we're one family. And that's something that's really important. We need to learn to live in peace and harmony between nations, between cultures, between religions, and between us and the natural world. Let's go to our next audience question. Hello, Dr. Jane Goodall. Thank you so much for coming. My question to you as an ecologist, you helped us all redefine what it means to be human, and I thank you so much for that. But what do you think are some of the next questions we need to redefine? Well, I don't know about redefining, but I, I actually believe that right now, for anybody interested in studying animal behavior, it is the most exciting time, certainly in my lifetime. Because, you know, when I got to Cambridge University and was told I couldn't talk about chimpanzees having personalities, minds, and emotions, because they were unique to us, and it was thought that there was a sharp line a difference of kind between us and the rest of the animals, and the chimps helped us to understand that, in fact, we're part of the animal kingdom. But the scientists were still, although they were admitting, yes, chimpanzees were very intelligent, and elephants and dolphins and things like that, but birds, no, no. When parrot owners say, uh, my parrot understands what what words he's saying, they say no, because the bird brain is structured differently. Now it's been proven that birds are incredibly intelligent. And you can look up the experiments with crows in Oxford University. Now there's a whole flurry of interest in the octopus. The octopus doesn't even have a proper brain. It's got a central nervous system. And so what the octopus can do, running across the ocean bed with two halves of a coconut shell, creeping into one half, putting the other over its head, so it's made a house where there's no rocks. And, you know, it, the latest thing was bumblebees. A bumblebee can be taught to roll a little ball and put it down in a hole, and other bumblebees who've just watched that can do the same thing to get a reward. Trees can communicate. That there's so much out there. So it's really redefining how we think of ourselves in comparison with the rest of the, of the animal kingdom. We're just one part of it. And we've gone wrong. We're the most intellectual. And yet, how is it possible that such an intellectual creature is destroying its only home? This is the question we have to answer and address. Next question. Hi. Um, I'm really excited to be here tonight. I mean, you're one of my heroes. I have, like, all these books about you. You're really inspiring to me and my friends. And my question is because if a chimpanzee could 
say one thing about like about the environment where it lives and it had one lesson to teach us, what do you think that would be? I think the chimpanzee would say, stop destroying my home. The home is the forest. We're destroying the forest every day. And that means the chimpanzees are being pushed towards extinction. So I think the chimpanzee would say, please, this is my home. I love my home like you love yours. Please stop destroying it. Next question. Hi, Jane. Um, I'm a college student studying ecology and evolutionary biology and hoping to go into um, wildlife conservation, especially hopefully with non-human apes. Um, and I was wondering what you think the most important skill for people like me is to learn to um, really make real change and be effective in doing so. I think that you need to, and it sounds as though you have a real passion for doing what you want to do. Uh, you have to be prepared to go out there, not just to say, I'm going to discover this about this animal, but to say, I'm going out to be with that animal, to, to learn from that animal, not just about that animal. I need to learn from that animal. And to be prepared to open your mind and not be afraid of what other scientists might say, and above all, have empathy. Just have empathy and feel what that animal feels, and then ask questions. Our last question upstairs. Do you have hope in the future? I, I definitely have hope in the future for five reasons. One is because of all the young people. So everywhere I go around the world, I meet groups of young people who want to come and tell Dr. Jane what they've been doing to make this a better world, to help animals, people, and the environment. It's not that young people can make difference. They are all over the world all the time. And they're so enthusiastic and so inspiring. So that's one reason for hope. Second is this amazing brain. And you know, we, we've invented so much technology to allow us to live in greater harmony with the natural world, clean, green energy, and things like that. And also thinking with our brains about what we can do each day to make a difference, to make the world better. My third reason for hope is the resilience of nature. Like I said, all around Gombe, the trees have come back. Animal species on the brink of extinction have been given another chance. And then social media, which, you know, it can be used for bad reasons, but nevertheless, we can bring, for the first time, people together from all around the world. We may never meet them, we don't know them, but if they care about climate change, you can have marches of people who passionately care and want to do something about it. And one of the climate change marches that I was part of was said to bring together more people uh, around a single issue in the history of the world. And that's because it was in something like 69 countries, I think. And finally, the indomitable human spirit, the people who tackle the impossible and won't give up and inspire others, the people with terrible 
disabilities who are out there inspiring others. And I just spent two hours with a young man from China who was born with no legs and arms to hear. He's one of the most amazing, filled with life, filled with the joy of living that you'll ever meet. And he says, I've been put together like this for a reason. And he goes around the world on a skateboard. He drives a tractor. This is an amazing man, and I meet other people like that. So yes, I have hope for the future because each one of us, every single one of us, has that same indomitable spirit. We have to let it grow and get together and realize that in togetherness is strength. We've been talking with primatologist and UN messenger of peace, Jane Goodall. You're listening to Climate One from the Commonwealth Club. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. In an industry not known for its social and environmental responsibility, Patagonia is a leader in understanding the impacts of its operations on people and the planet. And they're not above taking financial and political risks to back up their values. Patagonia, along with other conservation groups, recently sued Donald Trump over his decision to reduce the size of the Bears Ears National Monument in Utah. Patagonia founder Yvonne Chouinard is the author of several books, including his revised and updated memoir, Let My People Go Surfing, The Education of a Reluctant Businessman. Here's Greg Dalton in conversation with Yvonne Chouinard. Let's begin on an important evening in your life, 1956. It's your high school prom, and what are you doing? <laughs> I'm down at the L.A. River bottom down there gigging frogs and catching crawdads. <laughs> <laughs> so rather, everyone else is at the, at the dance, you're in the river chasing frogs. Yeah, I was never a dancer, actually. <laughs> Well, in 1968, you took a trip that you say shaped your life. You drove a 10,000-mile trip down the Pan American Highway. It was dirt then. So tell us about that trip and how it shaped your life. Well, uh, you know, I've been on a lot of different expeditions and trips, but uh, the longer they are, the more you get something out of them. And uh, this was a six-month trip. And so we left... Ventura, California, with an old van. This was Doug Tompkins and myself and some other folks. And we loaded the van up with surfboards and skis and climbing equipment, bought an old Bolex 16-millimeter camera, and took off surfing all the way down to Lima, went to Chile, and climbed volcanoes and skied down them. That's where I learned to ski. crossed over the Andes and went over to, and climbed uh, Fitzroy, a real famous mountain that had been only climbed twice. And we did a new route on it. And we made a film on the whole thing. And, and that's when I fell in love with that country, the, the southern end of South America called Patagonia. And uh, it affected Doug Tompkins a lot and myself. And, uh, and that's why I named it my clothing company, Patagonia, because it, I wanted to make clothing for those kind of conditions, you know, like Cape Horn and wild mountains and wild weather. And 
so you founded an outdoor gear company, you got into clothing, and at some point you realized that you were running a business, but you didn't want to be a businessman. Well, I, I never wanted to be a businessman. I, I was a craftsman, and I was a climber, and I just every time I'd go into the mountains, I'd have ideas on how to make the gear better. The gear was pretty crude in those days. It was all made in Europe. So I, I just got myself a forge and an anvil and a book on blacksmithing, and I taught myself how to blacksmith, and, and that led to making these pitons and eventually ice axes and crampons and all the gear for mountain climbing, and, uh, and never did it thinking that it was a business. It was, uh, at first it was just making the stuff for myself and friends, and then friends of friends, and pretty soon I'm making two of these pitons an hour and selling them for a dollar and a half each. Well, <laughs> not, too, not too profitable, right? <laughs> but uh, I kind of backdoored becoming a businessman, because this is in the 60s, and you know, businessmen were all greaseballs in the 60s. <laughs> you know, this is a counterculture that we were in, and we didn't respect business. In fact, they were the enemy. And so, uh, you know, one day uh, later on, I kind of woke up and discovered, oh, my God, I am a businessman. <laughs> and that's when I decided I better find out what I'm doing. And started reading a lot of books on business and basically trying to create a business that we wanted to come to work in. All of us, I mean, it wasn't just me, but all of us were all dirtbags. Explain that term, dirtbags, has a particular meaning for people who... Uh... Well, actually, that term, dirtbag, now you hear it all the time, but it actually came from Yosemite. People who are out in nature a lot. Um, 1981, you had a near-death experience in an avalanche in China. One person died, others, you survived. Tell us about that. Um, I used to go on a lot of, I'm kind of a serial climber, you know. I'd spend two years just climbing cracks. I'd spend five years just climbing big walls like in Yosemite. I'd, I'd spent years and years uh, learning ice climbing, in fact, writing a book about it and then I did a bunch of expedition climbing on, you know, in the Himalayas and Antarctica and places like that. And uh, one trip to Tibet, there was four of us coming down from Camp 2 on this 25,000-foot peak. And we set off an avalanche, and we were roped up together, and we went over a 30-foot cliff, and... The avalanche stopped, and we're trying to untangle ourselves from all the ropes and stuff, and we're thinking, oh, my God, we're alive. And, um, but the avalanche started again. And at that point, we knew that at just a few hundred feet below, there was a 300-foot cliff. So uh, we knew we were dead, and we accepted the idea that we're dead. We're going to die, and... The avalanche stopped 30 foot from the cliff, and one of the guys was, uh, had a broken neck, and he was dead. Another friend had a broken back. I had broken ribs and a concussion. I had no idea where I was. Um, and it kind of changed my life in that 
I've had a lot of close calls, near-death experiences, but always afterwards you go around sniffing the flowers and being really happy to be alive and everything. And, but after that, all of us were deeply depressed for several months afterwards. And it's, I've read stories about people that have kind of died and come back. Mm. And you resist coming back. And in fact, it's taught me that there's nothing to fear about death itself. It's it's pretty pleasant feeling. And since then, I've first of all, I I, I really scared the heck out of my family, and uh, I realized I don't want to do that again. I really cut back on that kind of climbing, but I also have an attitude that you know when my time comes, I'm going to go out pretty peacefully. We have a question from Facebook for Yvonne Chenard, founder and owner of Patagonia. Cameron DePetro asks, you said that an adventure isn't an adventure until something goes wrong. Do you still believe that to be true? Yeah, I mean, every definition of adventure in the in Webster's has risk, whether it's a financial venture or whatever. And adventure travel, that's a oxymoron. They make sure that you're not going to get into any trouble. <laughs> uh, Sign those release forms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and, uh, you know, if you really search out adventure, you, you have to purposely um, leave out some gear or, or you have to purposely <laughs> <laughs> stick your neck out. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to have an adventure. If you figure it out to the nth degree... It's not going to happen. And, and we searched out adventure when I was a kid. We always dared it to happen How so we could fight our way out of it. And, you know, that's when you get um, the most value out of the, the experience. Do you feel that about your own children having adventure, too? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, in, in fact, the first time my parents knew I was a climber. They were, this is 1964, they were watching television. And on the news program, uh, there's a helicopter coming by the, the North American wall of El Capitan. And then it zooms in on these guys hanging from hammocks underneath this big overhang, 2,000 feet up, and one of them is their son. <laughs> Uh, they always thought when I said I was going climbing that I was going hiking. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like when you got home when they found out about that? They were a guest, that's for sure. <laughs> Lots of companies talk about their values. They have them posted by the water cooler, et cetera, but it's a different thing to live them. So how do you operationalize them? And do you, do you go back to them, you know, keep coming back to them? Because all CEOs and companies say they have values. Well, for instance, our management, I mean, the name of my book is Let My People Go Surfing, because we have a policy that if your child is sick, go home, take care of them, uh, no matter what. And I don't care when you work, as long as the job gets done. And if the surf comes up, drop everything, go surfing, if you're a <laughs> surfer. If, if you have to wait till next Thursday at 2 o'clock to go surfing, you're like Trump would say, you're a loser. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, none of us 
liked authority. We really disliked authority, and none of us wanted to tell other people what to do. So our management system is kind of like an ant colony. Um, you know, an ant colony doesn't have any bosses. The queen just lays there and lays eggs. Um, there's no bosses in ant colony, but every single ant knows what his job is and gets it done, and they communicate by touching feelers, and that's about it. And so in, in Native American societies, the chief was not the richest guy in the tribe. He was the best orator because the tribe made decisions on consensus. Now, that's the opposite of how our government works. Our government works on compromise, which never solves the problem. It cuts the baby in half, so to speak. And to build consensus, you have to have leaders that can convince everybody that we're going to go in this direction. And it's kind of like a SEAL team. If one guy in the SEAL team says, oh, I don't know about this thing we're going on, I think I'm going to just hold back a little bit. It doesn't work. Every single person in that SEAL team has to agree this is what he's going to do. And if the leader gets killed, the next guy takes over. If he gets killed, the next guy takes over. It's, it's leaderless, really. And that's our management style. So I hire uh, very independent, very self-motivated people who believe in what we're trying to do, and I leave them alone. You recently converted Patagonia into a B corporation, which is a new type of corporate structure <laughs> that allows companies to seek social and financial returns without worrying about getting sued by investors for not maximizing profit at the expense of all else. So the question is, you did that to ensure that your two children who will inherit the company or other future owners won't change the company's values. Yeah, actually, they don't inherit the company, but they, it goes into a trust. And uh, the law, the way it is, forces every company to become public. It also forces you to sell to the highest bidder. You can't just sell your company to a close friend for $2. So the highest bidder for us, of course, would be going public. Well, being a B Corp, uh, you don't have to do that. You can establish what your values are, and you put that in your corporate charter, and um, you can avoid that. So um, hopefully the company can keep going with the same values for a long, long time. You had a moment when you looked closely at organic cotton and got surprised by what you found. It, it started with a, uh, a retail store that we opened in Boston. We got an old building and we retrofitted it opened it up, brought in all the clothing, and within three days, uh, my employees were complaining they were getting headaches. And so I brought in a chemical engineer, and he said, your, uh, the problem is your ventilation system is recycling the same air, and you're poisoning your employees. I said, well, wait a minute, where's the poison coming from? He said, well, it's all on all the, the cotton clothing that you have. It's, it's formaldehyde. And formaldehyde is used to have stay-pressed clothing, no wrinkling. It uh, helps the shrinkage and stuff. <laughs> and uh, it's super toxic stuff. That was a wake-up call, and that's when we decided to start asking a lot of questions about what we were doing. 
we did trips to the Central Valley and, and we visited cotton farms and we got sprayed by crop dusters and found out the cancer rates 10 times above normal in San Joaquin Valley there. And uh, I said, I don't want to be in business if I got to use this stuff. So thankfully, I learned about organically grown cotton and then we switched over. And then we started asking more questions like, well, how about dyes? What happens? Are dyes toxic? I didn't know. I always just bought cloth already dyed. So anyway, it led to us cleaning up our supply chain as much as we possibly could. Every time we learned we were doing something wrong, we changed it. You're passionate now about food. You formed Patagonia Provisions. So tell us about your passion for food and how you see food as a new avenue for the social change and concerns about climate change that you're talking about. Well, agriculture is the biggest uh, villain in climate change. And therefore, it's probably the best opportunity we have to do something about climate change. You know, our, our mission statement is cause no unnecessary harm. Well, I want to go beyond that. I want to do good. And so if I can get our people to grow cotton regeneratively, in other words, no more plowing, using cover crops, capturing carbon and leaving it in the soil, then it not only causes less harm, but it actually does good. And I think there's a lot of books out now on the idea of capturing that carbon that we're releasing through agriculture, through different grazing practices. And it's pretty exciting. It's, it's the most hopeful thing I've heard. You know, I mean, the reason I, I was in the clothing business, I thought I could change the industry and get other clothing companies to... Uh, by doing the right thing, proving that it's good business and that they would follow what we're doing. And you know what? It's not going to happen. I've, I've watched all these companies pick the low-hanging fruit and then back off. And so anyway, I... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not... They're I'm not pretty excited about agriculture food because I think we need a revolution in society. It's not going to come from any other way except from agriculture. I really believe that. People really care about they don't care about how cotton is grown in Turkey, but they really care about food. And so I want to be part of that revolution. I want to be in my blacksmith shop sharpening the guillotines. <laughs> that was Yvonne Chenard, founder and owner of the Patagonia Clothing Company. Greg Dalton's other guest today was the world-renowned primatologist, anthropologist, and environmentalist, Jane Goodall. To hear all of our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, or at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you podcast. Please leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think about our conversations on energy, food, water, technology, psychology, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.